Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from Mark, chapter 6, verse 1 to 13. The Rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power being done by his hands? Oh, sorry. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. The mission of the twelve. Then he went out among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we're gathered here in silence and reflection, maybe the most silent and reflective we've been all week, still it's hard to sink into relaxation or refreshment or to listening mode because we're always ramped up, moving forward, achieving, striving. We have so many messages that come at us thousands per day, telling us to achieve more, strive more, be more, do more. And if you can't do that, at least pretend on social media. And it's exhausting. And so we're anxious. We're tired. We're confused. 
Some of us come to this moment feeling successful and accomplished. Others come feeling concerned or worried. We come believing and unbelieving, and most of us somewhere in between, depending on the time of day. Help us to see that in the midst of our diversity, no matter how different we feel from everybody else here, we have far more in common than we realize. That you see us in all of our contradictions, in all the ways we get it, and in all the ways we don't get it. You see us in all of our complexity, in the ways we take one step forward and two steps back. You see us, and you know us, and you love us. You give yourself to us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we invite you to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. This passage was one of the passages that was in my mind and heart for a long time as we planned and prepared and prayed and raised funds and moved our family from San Francisco back home to San Diego. Now, part of that started when we were ministering in a church in San Francisco, and many, uh, quite a few of our San Diego friends came up and visited us, and they'd come to church just to be polite, just to be nice, to see what I do for a living or what we talk about on Sundays. And Constantly over brunch, Florence and I would hear our friends say things like, I don't go to church. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But if this church existed in San Diego, I'd be a part of it. Now, I know there are other good churches in San Diego, but for our friends, they didn't. And I finally said to Florence, I don't know of any other pastor that has friends that don't go to church saying, would you please start a church so I can connect with God and with my community? Let's go start that church. So we had this clear and compelling sense of calling and purpose. And still we had this passage. No prophet is with honor in their own hometown. Now, I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but I am a pastor. And the calling has some pretty similar muscle memory. It is my job to speak truth in love to a lot of people. And there's always this fear of failure, I think, that's kind of ubiquitous for all of us. But even more, when the Bible actually warns you against doing the very thing you're about to do, <laughs> go back to your hometown and be a prophet or a pastor. Which only makes this congregation that much more of a miracle, that much more enjoyable, that much more beautiful to me. When this church started, it started with just Florence and me. And then our parents came, and Derek and Jeanette came, and, and pretty early, early, early on, at least half the church was family. <laughs> and I'm like, if these people weren't related to me, would they even be a part of this church? Now you are all family. We didn't even know each other four years ago or three years ago or two years ago. And God is weaving something together here that is beautiful, that is strong, that's powerful, that's not only transforming the neighborhood, but it's actually changing us. And so we see today this powerful proclamation of the kingdom of God that transformed those early communities and to this day, right here, right now, transforms all of us. Now, before we get into it, this kingdom of God that's coming and what it looks like to receive it, I do have to recognize some of you heard that casting out unclean spirits and casting out demons, and some of you right now are saying, look, this is what I can't stand about the church. This is what I can't stand about Christianity, is it insists in the 21st century on still having a Bronze Age worldview of superstition, of evil spirits. Everything is a demon. Everything is some evil power at work in this world. And I want to say, I hear you. And some people have used that sort of imagery 
to make you feel bad or your friends feel bad or to call everything that's unexplained some sort of work of the devil. So I hear you. It is quite possible to be superstitious, and religious people are probably more guilty of it than others. We say things like, we are modern, we're educated, we're post-enlightenment people, we're rational. We don't have time or space for these sort of spiritual reality, dark reality conversations here. And then as a civilization, as an educated civilization, we believe things like the more technology we achieve, the more we can eradicate the problems in the human world. Except then something like World War II happens, and we realize as humans we have harnessed nuclear power, which can either power an entire civilization or level one. See, the smarter we get, the more educated we get, we don't eradicate our evil tendencies, we sophisticate them. We make them stronger. And scripture comes and says, is your worldview sophisticated enough for that reality? There's this image in the movie The Silence of the Lambs with Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. Anthony Hopkins, they received an Oscar award for their acting in this movie, I believe, and Anthony Hopkins plays Hannibal Lecter, this cannibalistic serial killer who's done some terrible, evil things. And Jodie Foster plays Officer Starling, who's going to meet with Hannibal Lecter in order to understand the mind of a killer because she's trying to find this other killer who's out there on the loose. And the first time she sees him, He's in solitary confinement, constrained, has a mask on him so that he can't try to bite anybody. And she's looking at him, puzzling, saying, what happened to him? And what she's looking for is the answers that we look for from a psychosocial, therapeutic, kind of rationalistic mind view. She wants to know what happened in his upbringing that made him so terrible. What happened in his socioeconomic conditions that pushed him to a life of such violence? What happened in his environment that nurtured him to such a point as this? Where did society fail him? And he looks at her and says, why are you looking for a rational reason I am the way I am? Can you afford to look at me and say, he's evil? So simply, the point is, scripture comes before you and says, to be a Christian is not to simplify your worldview and call everything the devil, but it is to sophisticate your worldview and say, there are natural causes and supernatural causes. There are physical realities in this world, individual realities, governmental realities, structural realities, yes. And as Hamlet said to Horatio, as Shakespeare wrote, there are more realities in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. There's more going on. Now the good news is, as a Christian, the invitation is never to therefore go and be afraid. It's always be aware there are competing kingdoms in this world and there's a true king who's conquered all and conquered not with violence or death but with life and so there's joy and there's hope it's possible to be superstitious and overbelieve in all of these realities it's possible to be substitious and underbelieve and jesus just says are you paying attention to what's going on in your life when you read the news stories when you look in the mirror and look at your own life or as Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspect said at the very end, perhaps the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making the world think he doesn't exist. Do you have a sophisticated worldview with layers of lenses to view the reality of this world? To follow Jesus actually wisens you up. It doesn't mean you check your brain at the door or your heart at the door or, or any of that. It means you actually turn it all on even more to be as perceptive as you can about your reality. You wake up. 
which is one of the great metaphors of what it means to become a Christian, waking up to the greater reality. So what is this reality? Let's look today at the message, the method, and the result of the kingdom of God. First, the message that they are to proclaim. So Jesus goes and he gathers the 12 and he tells them to go and proclaim a message. We've already learned what the message is earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Now, we hear kingdom, and it's a little far off. You know, we hear about kingdoms in the world today. Back then, they knew that there was already a dominant kingdom in the world. It was the kingdom of Rome. Rome had its foot on the neck of all of the surrounding territories and empires. And it was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But the, the myth of Roman peace was we can achieve peace through violence. We're going to hold the rest of the world at the tip of the spear, and they know that if they step out of line, their heads will come off, and therefore we can have peace together. So the people knew about peace through violence, about unity by being crushed and conformed, and Jesus came and had an entirely new message. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new king. There's a new way of being in this world. People also just on kind of a meta level had an understanding of the way that kingdoms work or the way that this world works. And it works through being fractured. Each of us could write a poem or a story. We might use different words or different language. A story about what it's like to be fractured and alienated from the divine, from the God that created you. A story of what it's like to be fractured and alienated from our own selves. We hide from each other. We hide from ourselves. Stories of what it's like to be alienated in community where there's blame shifting and scapegoating and theft and murder and war. A story of what it's like to be alienated from the natural world where the more we sophisticate our technology seemingly, somehow, the more climate change increases, the more mega storms increase, the more crop failures increase. It's all falling apart. They knew it then, and we see it now. And Jesus says that's not actually the truest story of the kingdom. There's a new king and a new kingdom that's on the move where all of this fracturedness will actually be brought together and be made whole. And when you read through the New Testament, the stories of Jesus' life through those lenses, you begin to see that everything that Jesus did was a full frontal assault on the fracturedness of this world. When he saw a broken body, he healed it. When he saw someone pushed to the margins of society, alone, alienated, left to their own devices, which were very few, with no real prospects, he saw them and he moved toward them and he brought them in. When he saw an individual who was struggling, he would move toward them, but he would also go and stay in an entire community for three days in John chapter 4, convincing them of his great love for them that transformed the whole society. Individual and communal, communal spiritual awakening and physical healing, every aspect of it is redoing, re-putting together the brokenness of this world. So how do you access it? He tells us earlier in his message in Mark 1, repent and believe. Now that word repent is simply a Greek word that means meta, noia. Meta, to change something, and noia, mind. To change your mind. To do a U-turn. And not just to change your mind in terms of new information, 
We do that all the time. It's to change your mind and align your life with ultimate truth. That the circumstances, the details, the cultures, the structures, those things do change over time. But above and below and around all of that is an ultimate truth. That there is a kingdom of God that is on the move in this world. So that part doesn't change, and a Christian stands on that, and then is pressed out into this world with wisdom, with perspective, with discernment on how to live as an ambassador of that kingdom in real time right now. So then it begins to ask some diagnostic questions. If the response to the coming kingdom is to change your mind in light of ultimate truth and align your life with that kingdom, and then to believe, to actually trust, to sit in it, to walk in it, to let it hold you, to let that king hold you even when you feel like you can't hold on to that king. It begins to ask you diagnostic questions. When you look at your life, if your life was a silent film and you were watching it, what do you think the main character, you, ultimately believes in to make all things right? What do you think the main character ultimately trusts in? And I think this is why Jesus is constantly coming back to us and saying, you can actually trust me. Turn toward me. Turn toward me again. It's not, I'll meet you halfway. In a journey of a thousand miles, I'll go 500, you go 500. The story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, I have come all the way down to you. Your hardest work is to trust that I love you this much. That's the message. Now, what's the method? Simply, the method is, Jesus called them and sent them to participate. I mean, the actual details we get, verse 7, Jesus called them. Verse 7, Jesus began to send them. Verse 7, Jesus gave them authority. Verse 8, Jesus ordered them to take nothing with them on the journey, which I think is part of trust. Trust that I will provide for you. Verse 10, enter into a home and stay there. Part of that was to not use the message for personal gain. If someone invites you into their home early on, and a week later their neighbor with a bigger home and a better kitchen says, why don't you come stay with me next week? He says, don't go over there. Stay with the original host and hostess. Receive hospitality. Don't do this for gain, right? Now, this was particular instruction to a particular people. But the point is, he calls them, he teaches them, he equips them, and then he sends them out two by two to go and do the very things they've been learning. Later on, we will see, after they've been sent out, he gathers them back together. He says things like, what did you see? And they tell him some wild things that they saw on the road. And he teaches them again, equips them again, and sends them back out again. This makes me think of when I was young. I actually did, I grew up in Ocean Beach right here, but I did sort of a reverse commute on the summers. I went back to Chicago for a month every summer. So everyone in Illinois was like, what is this San Diego guy doing? In, we're all trying to get to San Diego right now. What are you doing coming here? And one summer when I was young, my Uncle Mike and Tom Murphy, who was one of my uncle's good friends and still is, were building my grandma's deck. And I remember following them along as a five-year-old. Uncle Mike, Tom Murphy, can I help? Can I help? And I heard the refrain, Maddie, it's really a two-man job. <laughs> and who knows, they might have saved my life, or at least the deck. Flash forward to this last year where my buddy Kenny, who I know is watching, so hello Kenny and Helenka and Donovan. Kenny goes, hey, I know you want to do this project in your backyard. 
create this whole tiki area in the backyard and hang a nice TV and tiki torches and all that. Let's do it. Kenny comes over, and he has decades of experience. He can build anything. And he has all the greatest tools, all the right tools for the job. So Kenny comes over, and instead of saying, hey, it's really a one-man job, he says, Matt, I know you don't know how to do this. I know you don't have experience. I know you don't have the tools. I'm going to come over, and you're going to build this thing with me. And two things happen. Three things happen. Three things happen. They're all critical. One, my backyard looks awesome. Two, I know how to build awesome stuff now because I participated with an expert. And three, I spent a lot of time with Kenny during COVID in the backyard and got to know him better. Think about how that overlays on Jesus' method, where he says, you don't know how to do this. You couldn't even write five real sentences about the kingdom of God, but you're going to learn about it because I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to call you to myself. I'll be with you. You don't have the tools, but I do. So I'll give you something better than tools. I'll give you myself. And then I'm going to send you out to do the very things that you've seen and heard in me. And sometimes it will be a great success, and sometimes you'll feel like you have to rebuild the whole thing, and I'll be there with you. And when you do, the kingdom of God will be manifest. You will grow as a follower of Jesus, and you've spent a lot of time with the master carpenter and gotten to know him better. This is the paradigm for growth. This is what we heard last week when Matt and Janie shared, when Rita shared, when Ben shared. It was all about pouring ourselves out, and lo and behold, in the midst of it, we actually got filled up. We do this in so many ways at Renew Church. We do this on Sunday mornings through word and sacrament and community and teaching. We do this through our prayer gathering on Wednesdays as we bring before God our frailty and the needs of this world. We do this in community groups when they start back up in August where we encourage and empower each other. So we get filled up, and then we get sent out. We always call Renewed Church both a hospital and a launch pad. It's a hospital for tired, sick, broken people like you and me. Even in the short history of this church startup, I've had so many people come and say, Pastor, I love the mission of the church. I love the community of the church. I love the vision of the church. I'm exhausted. And I know church plants take a lot of energy can I just come and do nothing and receive? To which I always say, of course. Of course you can. If you're exhausted and fully poured out, you have nothing to give anyways. There's no manipulation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Come and receive. But at some point, you want to get to the point where you say, I'm beginning to get life back. I'm going to go and use some of these new muscles that I'm forming, not only for the good of the world, but for your own good. And I've seen that happen time and again in the four short years that we've begun this church. It's a launch pad where on one hand we serve one another, that Renew Church gets to be part of that sociological impossibility where people say, you all are so different from each other in the type of music you like or food you like or political preference or whatever socioeconomic status you have. You're different from each other, and yet see how they love one another. We become a sign to the watching world that Jesus really is forming a new family. We get to instruct the world on what it looks like to have unity, not because we all believe in the same way, all of the same details, but because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is calling all people to himself. And so we serve one another. 
We serve here in the church on Sunday, whether you're welcoming or at the front door, which every Sunday we know that you're inviting friends and you are coming. Many of you saying, I can't believe today is the day I'm actually going to try out church. I can't believe today is the day I'm actually going to listen to someone teach about the Bible. And you need to know you are most welcome here. The greeter, the welcomer gets to do that. People who set up and tear down, all of this are creating a place of hospitality and welcome. Our fun squad, when we move back inside on July 18th, we're going to move back to coffee and donuts after church and games after church. That's all creating an ecosystem of hospitality and welcome. People who are involved in our children's ministry, which is the only ministry that requires a background check, just so you know, for the, for the good of the kids and the good of everybody here. They get to get down on one knee and look a child in the eye and let them know that they are the beloved of God. But all of this comes together not just to make a program happen. This is not a program. This is a community. This is a body. This is a hospital and a launch pad. And as we serve in these ways on Sunday, it's all to advance our church's capacity to welcome and serve all our neighbors. We do these things far beyond Sunday as we're sent out organically so that you can be reminded that you're an ambassador of the true kingdom of God when you go into your workplace, whether it's education or health care or finance or maintaining your home and caring for your family or technology or real estate or law or music that this message and method actually empower you to go forward with confidence and humility. To know that you, to take your task really seriously and to take yourself really lightly and know that God is with you the whole way. We do this in organized ways or semi-organized ways, like know your neighbor the first Saturday of every month. And when we do this, we're patterning the life of those early followers of Jesus who, it says in verse 12, went, proclaimed, and healed. What do you hear there? Action, words, and actions of healing. Is What's more important, that people's sins are forgiven and they're brought closer to God, or that people's bodies are healed and bellies are fed and community comes together? What's more important? The gospel never makes you answer that question. Because wherever Jesus goes, all of that is happening together. Western Christianity has made a divide between the spiritual and the physical, or the sacred and the secular. But the early church knew that it's all sacred, that he's renewing all things, which means every single career here has a role to play in the kingdom of God. If you're a janitor, you clean as unto the glory of God, making this world a more beautiful place. You're a teacher. You're instructing and raising up future generations. You see on and on. If you're making an app for technology, you make it elegant and reliable to increase the capacity for people's lives. Everybody has a part to play as we go forward in the kingdom of God. So it asks a couple diagnostic questions. As those first followers went and proclaimed, first question is, as Dave Matthews asks in his song, where are you going? Where are you going? Especially if you look at some objective documents like your bank account or your calendar or what you think about the most. What does that describe about the trajectory of your life? Where are you going? And what story does your life proclaim? If your story was a book, what would the title be? What do you want it to be? The message, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. The method calls us in, sends us out, calls us back in, always going with us, for the world's good and for our good. And finally, the result. 
the result is both rejection and renewal. One of the things I love about the Gospels is how realistic it is about what actually happened. Right? They don't airbrush it. They don't put on some nice filter for it and say, and everything worked out great ever since that day. First, you see honest rejection. Rejection of Jesus. The first people at first were amazed at Jesus' wisdom and words. Who is this? Where did he get all this? He's amazing. But very shortly, it says, they took offense at him. In verse 3. That word, took offense, in Greek is scandalon, from which we get scandalized. So they didn't just kind of not like him or mildly offended by him. They were scandalized by Jesus. Who does he think he is? Nazareth is known as an out-of-the-way, podunk, uneducated, humble, nowheresville. Remember early on when Jesus is calling one of his first disciples, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus is offending the uneducated people who live out in the boonies. Later, we'll see him in Jerusalem with the intelligentsia, the elite, the trendsetters, the culture makers, the institution developers, and he's offending them as well. In other words, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, which makes sense. If he comes from out of this world into this world, wouldn't it make sense that he has something to teach all of us? So instantly you see, beware whenever a particular political party or cause begins to say things like God is on our side and this is God's man or woman or God's party, Jesus will have no part of it. In politics, we say Jesus is not from the right or from the left. He's from above, and he reserves the right to critique all of it. Jesus offends all of us, and he offends each of us in a different way depending on our worldview. For example, in San Diego, people by and large love it when Jesus talks about love, grace, justice, mercy, forgiveness. Yeah, tell me more about that. But when Jesus begins to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father but through me, whoa, look out, because that's an exclusive, powerful claim. But you go to the East or the Near East or the Middle East, and it's almost the exact opposite. By and large, these couples have no, these countries and cultures have no issue with the idea that there could be one true God or one true way to live. But then you start saying to them, you should forgive your enemies 70 times 7. If someone attacks you, turn the other cheek. If you have two tunics, you should give one, an extra coat to someone in need. And they say, are you kidding me? You people are without honor. You will get trampled. No way. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. What offends you about Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I had a great conversation with someone this week who just said, I'm so mad at him. Am I, is that a bad thing? No, that's, a, that's a, a great example of you paying attention and really engaging with him. If a married couple comes to me and says, we've never had an argument, I would say someone here is not being fully authentic with yourself or with your spouse because, of course, you're going to have issues at some point. What offends you about Jesus? I also think that what offends us today, what scandalizes us today, is what offended them back then. Because I wonder about what it was like to go back to his hometown, where these people knew him. And they saw him playing on the local soccer team or whatever it was as a kid. And they're saying, who is this? Who does he think he is? Isn't this, the, they're trying to put him in a box. 
He's a carpenter, so they're putting him in his vocation or his career. He's the son of Mary. Note they don't say the son of Joseph, going all the way back to the story of Christmas, Jesus' miraculous virgin birth of Mary, and they're still going, we're still not sure if Joseph is the dad or not or what happened here. In a shame-honor society, can you imagine what that was like for this family? To say, we know him. We know what he does for a living. We know where he grew up. We know who his mom is. We know his scandalous life story. We're going to keep him minimized. We're going to keep him small size. Or they say, you know, we want to treat him as one of the many wise rabbis in town with good teaching. One of the purveyors of wisdom in our society. But prophet? Messiah? I don't think so. And it was into that worldview Jesus comes and says, either crown me as the king of the world or kill me as a fraud. But the last thing that makes sense for you to do is to say, I'm just a good teacher. I'm just a dispenser of wisdom. And so they reject him. And then you see the rejection of his friends. In verse 11, he says to his friends who he's sending out now two by two, if any place will not welcome you. Notice the implication. It's that you will not always be welcome because you associate with Jesus. Christian friends, you will not always be welcome because you associate with Jesus. You identify with Jesus. You follow him in this alternative kingdom that plays by alternative rules, that turns everything on its head, and you proclaim the kingdom of God with your words and your actions, and your life will be inexplicable. You live according to the kingdom of God even before you live according to the rules of a particular tribe or ethnicity. You proclaim the kingdom of God even above and beyond citizenship to your particular country on a day like today. Now, note what I'm saying and note it well. It does not erase your ethnicity. It does not erase your culture. It does not erase your citizenship. It says those are important things and often great gifts to be stewarded. But they are not the ultimate, ultimate reality or the ultimate authority. There is a higher authority than any of it. You proclaim an alternate kingdom above amassing as many resources as you can and using them for yourself. You proclaim an alternate way of being aside from trying to acquire as many entertainment experiences as possible. And your life will be inexplicable. And you will be rejected at some point. Expect rejection, he says. It's very honest. Now, some of you right now have been Christians for a while, and you've never experienced this. To which I would say, A, that's great. I would actually much rather that for you. But it does make you ask the question, is it possible that you're not experiencing any sort of friction, any sort of difficult conversation, because you're actually not transforming the neighborhood or the people around you, because you're not engaging? On the other hand, some of you are only experiencing rejection, right? People are, you're the person when you walk in the room, people step away or they got to go do that thing or they remember their dentist appointment and they're not engaging with you. And you come back to this and you say, yeah, but he said I would be rejected. I would say to you as your pastor and friend, if you're only experiencing friction, only experiencing rejection, it might be that you're abrasive, (laughs) that you're shoving your faith down other people's throats, that you're being manipulative and difficult to be around, that you're preaching a gospel of grace, but there's none of it in your own life. See, Jesus says expect both, rejection and renewal. You want to, that's the sweet spot in your life. Truth and love. So you experience rejection, and finally, there's a vision of renewal. 
as we said in the very beginning. So I won't unpack it too deeply now. But it's this vision of spiritual renewal, people reconnected with God. Physical renewal, bodies that are healed. Individual renewal, where individual lives are transformed. Communal renewal, where the whole neighborhood or town or city is operating according to a different principle. It is a sky-high, all-encompassing vision of a new kingdom. And you and I get to be a part of it. This is what we see envisioned in Jesus' resurrected life. Where he was not resurrected merely as a disembodied soul floating around on the clouds playing a harp like the platonic vision of reality. He was resurrected spiritually and physically, showing us that all things are going to be renewed. This is the vision of the coming kingdom, of the new creation that we're about to celebrate at this table. When we say every ethnicity and culture and language streaming together around the throne of Christ, it also has a note in there that says, and the kings and rulers of the earth bring their treasures before the true king. Think about that. Somehow, the beautiful, expensive, important, weighty things that we do in this world make it into the new creation as gifts that we lay down before the king. I think an iPhone 12 is going to make it into the new creation as a gift laid down before the king. A Dreamliner airplane is going to be laid down before the king. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai is going to be laid down before the king. Somehow the skills that you use to lead your team well at work are going to be laid down before the king. The family that you raise will be laid down before the king. The tapestry of this neighborhood with people walking past each other, talking past each other, becoming friends and family, is going to be laid down before the king. And the amazing thing is, it's not on layaway. It will be completed in the future, but it takes place now, and we get to participate. That's true freedom. That's true joy. That's deep connection. That transforms the world. It also transforms you and me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would help us to see that the kingdom of God is at hand, and you invite us not only into it, but then you invite us to go out two by two, with your instruction, with your presence. And as we do, you actually transform us. So please now, by the power of your spirit, make that specific and concrete in each of our lives. Give us a sense of your calling, of how to pour ourselves out, even as we allow you to pour yourself into us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.